Good morning to all of you. It's good to be with you again. It's always a privilege to fellowship with God's people. It's a great privilege to open his word. And it's a remarkable thing, isn't it, that God would have anything to do with us at all. Uh, to come and fellowship around his word is, is such, a, such a privilege. All right, so we're looking this morning at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. I'd like to begin reading at verse 11, just to give a sense of the verses that have come before. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, if you're still trying to navigate your Bible, find that it comes after the book of Proverbs. That might help you. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and again, beginning to read at verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it. And a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, how can we see unless you light the path before us by your word and by your spirit? How can we hear Unless you open our ears, how can we confess unless you show us the way of truth? And so we pray, Father, again this morning, as you have done so many times before in secret and public, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. And show us, Father, lead us by the light of your grace and your truth, that we would receive and believe and follow your wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. September 25th, 1983. The nuclear early warning system of the former Soviet Union sounded the alarm. That alarm said that several missiles were in flight from the United States on their way to the USSR. And when this happens, the man in charge had one job to do, was basically push a button and launch a full retaliation. That full retaliation was 38,000 missiles, nuclear-armed warheads, to be uh, launched in retaliation. But the man in charge had a hunch that this was not real. 
that this was a false alarm, something was wrong with the system, and decided to ignore that, that warning. And he did so not just once, he did so five times, deciding not to retaliate, not to give the okay for this retaliation. And as it turns out, he was right. It was a false alarm. There was something wrong uh, with this early warning system. And there were no missiles that had been launched from the Soviet Union or from the United States towards the Soviet Union. Some think that by doing so, he probably saved at least 180 million lives at the time. He should be regaled as a hero, and he was at the first. At first, because what this exposed, of course, that there was a flaw in that warning system, and it made the Soviet Union look bad. It made the leaders of the Soviet Union look bad. It was a weakness. And so he was quietly retired and set off to the country and to some cottage. Surely a man like that, everybody would would remember. Um, A man who had the wisdom and the foresight to understand that this was not a real thing and save all these lives. But I wonder how many people in this room actually know his name. Stanislav Petrov. I think we're honest, nobody in this room remembers that name. But how could we not? Wisdom isn't always remembered. Wisdom is not always appreciated or received. That's what our passage is about. That's the kind of world that we we live in. And despite the fact that this book talks about wisdom and how wisdom is always better, wisdom is always, always better, but it's not always appreciated. It's not always heard, not always received. And so we're going to look at these verses this morning uh, in this way, verses 13 through 15, we'll simply call that the wisdom of weakness. And then picking up again in verse 15 to verse 18, we'll call that the weakness of wisdom. And then we'll reflect upon the passage for its significance. I'm going to call that the weakness of God's wisdom. That may sound like an alarming thing to say, but I know what I'm saying. You'll find out. So the wisdom of weakness, verses 13 through 15. The weakness of wisdom, verses 15 through 18. And then, last of all, the weakness of of God's wisdom. Now, in these opening verses, what he shows us is that the, the wisdom of the poor, of a poor man, can be greater than the power of the great. And he says, I remember an example of this. He says in verse 14, there was a small city and it was facing an impossible situation. And the contrast could not be greater. You had this great king coming against this little, little city building these tremendous siege works against a city of few men. You had on the one hand this massive power and great means at the disposal of this powerful king, and yet you had this little city had no power and few means. So the situation looks completely impossible. It's a hopeless situation, and yet the city was saved. And he says he was saved by an unlikely savior. He says this poor, wise man. Now, it's important it says poor because poor means this is not a person who has any power whatsoever. He has no voice. He is not a person sitting in a position of of privilege. And yet, this is the one who delivered the city by his wisdom. And that's why he begins this passage in verse 11. Remember what he said? The battle is not always to the strong. Here's an example of that. The word of a simple wise man can overthrow the strong, a great army and a great king. Now, we have an example of this in Scripture, in 2 Samuel 20. You know that there are some that rebelled against David, his own son, Absalom, but also there was a man by the name of Sheba 
who gave the cry to people around Israel to this rise up against King David. He was able to gather a lot of people to himself, and eventually uh, David sent Joab against him to hunt him down, and Asheba and his men found refuge in the city of Abel. And so here comes Joab, and he puts a siege work against the city, like what we have described in our passage here. It begins to, to batter against the wall to tear it down. And a woman appears at the wall says, why are you doing this? This is the city Abel. People used to say, if you need wise counsel, go to Abel. There you'll receive that wise counsel. Why do you want to swallow up the inheritance of, of Israel? And Job says, I'm not interested in destroying your city, but there's a man in that city, Sheba, that we want. She said, his head will be thrown over the wall to you. Um, be careful who you negotiate with. You know, <laughs> That's quite a claim. And that's exactly what happened. This wise woman, she saved her city. She saw immediately what needed to happen, and this is what took place. We have many examples of this in history in 231 uh, B.C. Uh, there was a whole Roman fleet of ships that come against the city of Syracuse. They're going to launch an amphibious launch uh, uh, assault on this city and take it over. There's not much hope for, for Syracuse, except they had a mathematician. Never underestimate the power of a mathematician. Archimedes. Archimedes had several inventions. He engineered several things. And one of the things he figured out was, was leverage and the, the power of a lever. And he had these huge catapults and also these cranes that could launch out over the city wall and drop stones on ships or even claws that would drop down and pick up a ship and drop it and destroy it. And they were able to repel this amphibious attack by the, these Roman ships because of one man, a mathematician. It just takes one person, one voice, one idea. That's the power of wisdom, if it's heard, right? If it's received, if it's appreciated for, for what it is, if it's, if it's remembered, that's, that's the condition, and that's actually the problem as he begins the second point. Of course, wisdom is always better, but it's not always... Heard, it's not always honored, it's not always recognized. This man that saved the city, what should happen to him? He should be honored. Uh, what he did should be enshrined in the corporate memory of this, of this city. They should have an annual day in his honor. They should, they should put up a statue, remember him by. My wife's from Philadelphia. When we lived there, there was this big controversy because they wanted to remove the, the statue of Rocky from in front of the Museum of Fine Art. And the outrage, of course, is nobody had done more for the city of Philadelphia than Rocky. Because <laughs> the irony is not a real person. But this went down deep to the marrow of Philadelphians. And my wife is still upset about this, by the way. <laughs> but you do something like that. You want to honor what this man had done. Think of Alvin York. Right? He goes off as simple rural boy, poor boy from, from Tennessee to fight World War I. But he was, a, he was a great shot, and he was, he was courageous, and he was wise. He was able to, to capture an entire German company. And so when he comes back to the United States, he, is, he comes back home as a hero. So the state of Tennessee, not wanting to forget what, what their son had done, they gave him a plot of land and built him a house where he was able to, to live and honor. what he, That's what you do to heroes. And yet what do we learn in verse 15 here? This wise man, he was not remembered. People stopped talking about what he had done. They forgot about his wisdom. They're not thinking about what he had done. Of course, this happens in the Bible as well. 
right? Who am I thinking of? Joseph, so you're Baptist, you're allowed to speak back to me. In a Presbyterian church, we would never do that, right? But it's Joseph, right? Joseph, he saved an empire. He saved who knows how many lives. He saved the remnant of of God's people. And yet, how does the book of Exodus open? A pharaoh arose who knew Joseph not. How is that possible? How could a man like that be forgotten? And that's what happens. Wisdom has real value. It should be regarded. It's better than mind, as we're learning in these passages. But there's sometimes, verse 16, wisdom is despised. This man's words were not heard. It didn't register with everybody. His deed was forgotten. Maybe it's because he was a poor man. People despise and easily dismiss the poor. Wisdom is better. It's not always heard. It's wisdom is much better than, than folly. He says a quiet voice of the wise is greater than the shouting of, of the powerful among fools. Think of the United Nations. It's probably not a more dignified place where ambassadors and representatives come together, hear speeches, but in 1960, since we're picking on the USSR this morning, let's continue with that theme. The very first general secretary of the Communist Party, Nikita Khrushchev, was making a speech there at United Nations, 1960. He's very forceful. He begins to shout. That's not good enough. Some of you who are about my age, around there, in your prime, you remember what he did. He took off his shoe and began to pound the desk next to him. This is outrageous. Who does stuff like that? Our passage speaks of that, the shouting of the powerful and the rich among fools. This is true in our day. Who makes the news? The loudest, the most outrageous, the most controversial, not the quiet voice. So you see what he's saying. One little idea can stifle the machinery of war if it's given a chance, but it can go the other way as well. Verse 18, it just takes a little bit of folly to overcome the greatness of wisdom and to undo all the good that it had built and constructed. Just one evil verse, it just takes one bad idea to undo all the good that wisdom can accomplish or has accomplished. It doesn't even matter how great that wisdom is. It doesn't take very much to dethrone it sometimes. There are three cathedrals in, in Europe that, that collapsed, and one of those cathedrals, was when it was being built, it was an engineer who said, we need to stop getting stone from that quarry. This is compromised rock. It's not going to hold up. And, but they kept building and building and scoffing at him, said, see, you were wrong. But eventually it did collapse, and they sorted through all the wreckage, and they found one stone that was a bad stone taken from the very quarry that he warned about. Just one stone. And the whole thing collapsed. You can have one poor man who can overcome a great king, but you can also have one sinner who can overcome great wisdom, it says here. And we see that in the Bible as well in 1 Kings 12. First generation after Solomon, Rehoboam. And what does he do? He listens to the young men he grew up with. And with one decision, he undoes all that his grandfather David and his father Solomon had built. The rest, the wealth, the strength, it's all divided. It's all gone. It just takes one. And if you think about it, isn't that how all evil began? Our first parents in the garden, 
listening to one voice, one sentence. Eat the fruit of the tree, and you'll become like God. It's one line, one lie. Paradise was undone. And true wisdom, the true wisdom of God was denied in favor of sinful folly. That's how it all began in terms of evil. And perhaps that's why the preacher says in verse 13, this seemed great to me. Now, he doesn't say that often in this book. He tells us lots of significant things. But this is one of those markers where he's saying, now this struck me as particularly important. Like everything hangs on this. And this is the point. But this is the very lesson about wisdom, and it shows us two things. On the one hand, it shows us what wisdom can do. Even if it arises from the most humble source, it doesn't matter. If it's seen and appreciated and valued for what it is, it can do so much. But secondly, how wisdom can be so quickly dismissed and forgotten if it's not valued. It can be passed over. That real wisdom is not always appreciated. It's not always cherished, or at least not for very long. It's forgotten sometimes, like it never happened. And it can be the very thing that is needed. This could be the very best word that you could hear in your entire life, and it could be ignored, or the best word you're sharing with somebody else, and yet it is dismissed, or it's heard immediately, and then it's, then it's forgotten. Think of the sharing of the gospel. How many times is this true? You're laying it out so clearly. It's clear as crystal. But the person doesn't understand what you're saying. They don't want it. They can't appreciate it. You're giving them words of life. And even we ourselves, when we sin, it causes us to reflect with honesty. And not just say, why am I so weak that I fall? Sometimes we tell ourselves, how can I be so stupid? And God has given me the treasures of wisdom. Wisdom can save lives. Or it can get lost in the madness of the mob. And that's why we don't listen to the mob. Sometimes we're standing in the minority. It was Luther who was asking himself, can I alone be right? And he was asking himself that question in humility. This is inconceivable that so few would understand the gospel. Think of Athanasius, who stood alone. Many times at one point he was the minority, the majority of you did not hold that Christ was eternal. They'd gone to Arius and to Arianism, what he believed. He stood alone. We don't go with the mob. We don't go with the mainstream because we don't want to listen to what they say about what is right and wrong. We don't listen to the mob or when it tells us what is virtuous. What is it that's normal? What does it mean to be rich? What does it mean for a young person to be beautiful? We don't listen to the world on these things. We listen to wisdom. Wisdom is life and death. Yet it's not always heard. It's not always loved. It's not always remembered. That's what our text is teaching us. Now, there's another example of this under the sun. And it seems good to you and to me. It's important to us. And it's the gospel. We could call it the weakness of God's wisdom. Why do we say that? Why would, why would I say the weakness of God's wisdom? 
Well, think of the passage that was read earlier in 1 Corinthians 1. What is Paul telling us? That to the world, what is the cross? The cross is not wisdom. It's not power. The cross sounds like weakness. It sounds like like folly. And in 1 Corinthians 1, it tells us that the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. It doesn't fit the categories that the world wants when it comes to wisdom, to the preaching of the cross. Paul said that's an obstacle to the Jew. It's, it's a laughing stock to the Greek. That's still true today. And God's wisdom does not satisfy the demands of the modern mind. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called God in the Dark. And what he's saying is that it's no longer the case that God is the judge and the man is in the hot seat. It's, it's been reversed. That God is the one who's on trial. Man is the one who is judged, trying to shape God according to his standards. This comes out so graphically in a quote by Sigmund Freud, who said, if I should ever meet God, and I don't think I ever will, he will have more to explain to me than I will to him. It's an incredible thing to say. But it captures a modern mind perfectly. This is a great problem. This is a tremendous problem. Men shaping God to conform to their own notions. And they do this because of the cross. It's the cross that offends human pride. It's a a cross that insults us, that confounds us. Francis Schaeffer said, Christianity is the easiest thing in the world. Why? Because you can do nothing. But Christianity is the hardest thing in the world. Why? Because you can do nothing. And for some people, that's unbearable. That's a step too far. That you can do nothing, but that's what distinguishes Christianity, as we'll see in a second. So God's wisdom is not always heard. In fact, it's resented, it's rejected, it's, it's despised. And we see that in the coming of Christ. John 1 tells us that, that John tells us that Christ came to his own, but his own received him not. They didn't hear him. They didn't believe in him. Think of his his earthly ministry. How did the Pharisees look upon Jesus, this simple carpenter? They dismissed his teaching. He has no schooling. Why should we listen to him? They despised him. And at his trial, we have this quiet voice that is drowned out by the shouting voices of fools and liars. As he stands before Pilate, what is it that prevails. It's the madness of the mob shouting Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. They would rather have this man guilty of insurrection and murder than this man who was completely innocent. And Pilate knew that. There's tremendous irony in irony in all of this that we think of Christ that by a mere word, what was he able to do? To cast out demons, chase away sicknesses and diseases by a mere word of blessing, multiply fish, and bread and feed thousands of people. He was able to raise the dead just as easily as he brought forth the galaxies by a mere spoken word of power. And yet he was not heard. In fact, he was spurred and rejected and forgotten. But what is the gospel? Is it really a display of folly and weakness? The gospel is a display of God's wisdom. It is the exhibition of his power that overcomes all things for the benefit of sinners like us. The gospel is about how one poor man of wisdom overcame the great power of sin and death and Satan. 
We think of the cross, and Scripture tells us that the cross is actually a convergence of several streams of God's excellency. At the cross, we see the righteousness of God and how it is satisfied by the death of Christ, so that God is both just and the justifier of the wicked, of those who believe in Christ. It's the cross that exhibits for us God's holiness. It shows us this is what sin demands when you sin against a holy God. It's a cross that shows us the glory of God. That's what Christ said, that now is the Son of Man to be glorified and bring glory to the Father through the cross, ironically as it is. And of course, the cross is love. That's what Romans 5 tells us, that this is how God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were weak and yet sinners, Christ died for us. But it's not just the display of, of God's holiness and his righteousness and glory and his love. It's a display of his wisdom and his power. cross is not foolishness, it's the wisdom of God's power. It's the wisdom of God that's revealed to us and for us and provides a way that truly satisfies these things, the, the requirements of God's justice. It satisfies the need of, of guilty sinners through this great substitute of Christ Jesus. And that's why Paul says, Christ Jesus has become for us the wisdom of God. Our righteousness, our, our sanctification, our redemption And the cross is not weakness, it's the power of God's wisdom. It's a power that puts an end to sin's power and its ability to condemn us or to reign over us or to sting us in the end. Death dies in the death of Christ, as John Owen said, because Christ pays the penalty. Now, by saying this, what I'm saying is that the gospel is exactly what we need. The gospel is for those who are weak, it's for the poor. It's for poor sinners. It's not for the righteous. It's for those who are sick, not for those who are well, as Christ said. And perhaps you've come here this morning and you say, well, I'm not a very good Christian. I fall short and I'm failing all the time. I'm this weak and poor sinner that we're talking about this morning. If this is true of you, then you've come to the right place. I don't know everything about this church, but I'm pretty sure I'm speaking on behalf of the congregation that you've come to the right place. Perhaps you felt the siege works of temptation rising up against you, and it feels like the world is just battering against the walls of your heart. Or you're hearing that shouting of voices within, tempting you to sin. But you see, the salvation of God, everything about the salvation of God is about your weakness. And the power of God's grace. The gospel is about God doing what you and I could not do for ourselves. It's about Christ coming and dying a death that you could not endure. It's about his satisfying a debt that you could not pay. It's about his conquering an enemy that you could not defeat. All this in order to to gain this victory that you and I could not obtain to win a salvation that you and I do not deserve. It's all about that. It's about you and I being dead, but God making us alive, that we were blind, but he giving us sight, that we were lost, and now we are found. It's about you and I continuing to struggle with being weak and and failing and stumbling, but about his magnificent grace being sufficient and strong and never failing. And that's why we say the cross is the death of sin's power and its sting. It's the end of Satan's rule over us. You know, at first glance, what Satan thought was the cross was his moment of conquest. It was his doom. 
It's how God put all the rulers and authorities of spiritual darkness to open shame. He embarrassed them through what appeared to be his weakness. And if you miss that point in the death of Christ, you get it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we were just singing a few minutes ago, that he gains the victory over the grave, that he rises in triumph over over death to seal the point that Christ is successful in all of his work. What has he done? He has covered the offense of our sin. He has exhausted all the wrath of God. He has appeased the demands of justice. He has washed away all of our sins. And he is exalted in his ascended glory, sitting at the right hand of God with all rule, authority, and power, dominion under his feet. Nothing is exempted from bowing before him in his magnificent greatness, for our benefit, causing all things to work together for our good. That's the Christ that has saved us. It is more than sufficient to cover for all of our weakness and to obtain that forgiveness of our sins, that you and I would stand acceptable before the sight of God, that we'd be adopted into his family. You see, what is impossible for man to conceive of in his folly, this is what is possible for God to secure in his wisdom and his power. Through the cross. The gospel's more than words. It's about the Almighty God saving powerless sinners like you and me. And to know that there is no sin that Jesus Christ cannot atone for, that He cannot overcome, that He cannot crush under His, his feet. As Richard Sibbs a Puritan put it, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. And you have to believe that. You have to hang on that. That power that raised Christ from the dead, Paul says, is the same resurrection power that's at work in you. So that you truly can die to sin. That you can walk in righteousness. It's a power that will lead you to glory. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. That's why he can promise the Philippians that he who began a good work in you, he will carry it forward. He will carry it on to that great day of Christ Jesus. He will complete that work that he began. Greater is he who is in you than he was in the world. All these promises are to assure us that we are saved, not just by the greatness of God's love, but by the greatness of his power and his wisdom. One day you and I will stand with that great crowd of glorified saints and angels in heaven, singing the praises of our our great God and sing to him these words, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Blessing, glory, honor, power, might, and wisdom forever and ever. Amen. 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 Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And despite all appearances to the contrary to this world, it is a wonderful display of who you are. And as we've learned this morning in particular of your wisdom and the power of that wisdom, We thank you for rescuing us. We thank you for opening our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see our sin and to see the one who is the remedy of that sin, namely Jesus Christ. But Father, may his 
Help us to continue to cling to that gospel every day. And do this, Father, that we might improve in grace, that we might better serve one another, but to do it especially for this reason, that you'd get the glory for yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.